Would you please open your Bibles to 2 Chronicles, the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 36. Today we come to the last part of our study as this survey of the Old Testament. Next Lord's Day, the Lord willing, we start the New Testament structure to see how the books are put together. And I hope the, the series of sermons have been helping you to see the beauty of God's Word, the unity, the coherence. Thank you. Would you please stand and let's read God's Word, starting in verse 22, 2 Chronicles chapter 36. We're going to read verses 22 and 23. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Father, we ask for your blessing, that your face would be shining upon us. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see. Help me to be faithful, Lord. I pray that you guard my mouth. Oh, how I need you, Holy Spirit, to, to help me, empower me, and the congregation also. I pray that this morning, your word would be proclaimed not only here, but in many churches in the Salem area. Thank you for this wonderful time that we can start the week sitting at your feet and listening, learning about you, loving you more. So help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. How many people here like quilt, the art of making quilt? What is... A quilt. Basically, a cover for a bed where different patches of cloth are stitched together. And then you say, oh, that's easy. But the stitching together of these cloths require a lot of skill and technique. If I were to make a quilt, it would probably be in the Guinness Book of Records as the ugliest quilt ever. Because it requires skill, technique to put those parts together. I, I saw the, the most expensive quilt ever sold at an auction is a Civil War era quilt known as the Reconciliation Quilt. Does anybody here, have, has anybody heard about this one? Yes? Oh, wow. That's amazing. <laughs> 
This quilt was bought for two hundred and sixty-four thousand dollars in 1991, and now it's in the University of Nebraska. Hmm. It's funny that, for, for of course, every metaphor has its limitation, but. For many people, the Bible is just a bag with a bunch of pieces of cloth. And when you ne- whenever you need a piece of cloth, you just pull that cloth, or whatever it is. That's how so many people see the Bible. Oh, today I need a piece of blue cloth, so you just pull that. But in reality, as we look at, at the scriptures, we behold the majesty, the wisdom, the beauty of God as the master artist. The different patches, they have different sizes and colors. They're all placed, all stitched together, forming a glorious quilt that covers God's people with comfort and warmth. That's what the Bible is. And that's what I hope we have been beholding. Despite the different books, the different authors, the different pieces of cloth, the Lord stitched them together, making this beautiful, this beautiful cover that shows His glory and His majesty. Uh, today we're going to continue our journey. Last Lord's Day, just to review, we, we saw the, the Lord Jesus in the New Testament hold together to the three parts of the Old Testament, different from the, the English Old Testament. We saw how Jesus in the New Testament, they, they verified the threefold structure of the Tanakh, the Torah, the prophets and the writings. So we saw first with Jesus when he talks about the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Psalms being the first book of the writings. So we saw how Jesus himself often refers to the, the Old Testament as this three or two part structure the, the law and the prophets, the law, the prophet, and Psalms. And it's different from our structure. We also saw when Jesus refers to the blood of, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, and he's not talking about the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet, but he's talking about the canon of the scripture. So the blood of Abel, that's Genesis, and the blood of Zechariah is found in Chronicles. So Genesis, first book of the, his old, old Testament, and then Chronicles, the last book of his Hebrew scriptures. So that's what we saw. And then last Lord's Day, we also started journeying through the Torah. And we saw how the, the first five books, from Genesis through Deuteronomy, they are all placed together with a very unified and coherent story where there is the emphasis of God's word, God's presence, Exodus, exile, the Messiah. It's all stitched together, these five books, in a, in, in a very beautiful manner. So that's what we saw last Lord's Day. Today, just so you can see, we are going to look at the transition from the Torah to the prophets. Then we're going to look at the prophets. We're going to look at the writings and then the conclusion of the Tanakh. That's the, the goal for this morning. So, and I think you have in your bulletin, I, I think you have the, the table with you. Thank you, Brian, for putting that. So you, you can just look in your bulletin there. And you see that now we are moving from the Torah to the Nevi'im, the prophets. Deuteronomy is the last book of the Torah, and it ends with the death of Moses. 
Moses, he doesn't enter the promised land. Moses dies as in exile. And then, now starting with the prophets, we come to Joshua. And Joshua takes the role of Moses in leading the people to the promised land. What is fascinating is, is when you see how the scenes that are placing together this beautiful quilt and these two parts together, you see how the book of Deuteronomy ends and how the prophets start. They have a very important connection. Both are talking about the prophet Moses. Moses as the great prophet. So, uh, let me just move here. And even the end of the prophet. So, for example, Deuteronomy ends with talking about Moses, the servant of the Lord. And then the prophets start with Joshua. And Joshua chapter 1 talks about Moses, my servant. And then Malachi, the last book of the prophets, also has a reference to Moses the prophet. So you can see how there is a, a thematic connection. So the book of Deuteronomy ends saying, until today there has not been a prophet like Moses. The Lord has not raised a prophet like Moses. And that's somebody who wrote later, added that to the book of Deuteronomy, I believe under the inspiration of God. And he has already implied that there were other prophets who came, but no one was like Moses. So you think about Deuteronomy ends in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 10, saying that there has not been a prophet like Moses. And what is the name of the next section? The prophets. So it's helping, it's preparing us to see how through the prophetic has not come a prophet like Moses, leading God's people into a new exodus, establishing a new covenant like Moses. So we start noticing this very important pieces that unite the body of writings together. So as we move to the prophets, uh, you can see that the prophets, they are divided in two parts. You have the former prophets and then you have the latter prophets. The former prophets, it's narrative. So it's from Joshua to Kings. You have four books from Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. That's the former prophets. They come earlier. They, it's narrative. And then you have the letter prophets. And then it's Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and the book of the Twelve. And that's poetry, primarily. Of course, you have Jonah there. That's a narrative, but it's primarily poetry. So you have this very well-balanced structure with the prophets. Uh, as we are thinking about the first part of the prophets, the former prophets, the, is the historical aspect it's important for us to see, because we, we always think about history, we have our own standard of history, how history should be written. But when you look at the, these former prophets, we see that's not just history. But it's history shaped and guided by the prophetic word of God. So it's a prophetic history. All that takes place with the nation of Israel historically is inseparable from the words spoken by the prophet Moses and then later Elijah, Elisha. Okay, so that's very important. Why is, that, why is this history with the prophets? That's what people always ask. If it's narrative, if it's history, why is it with the prophets? It's because this history is inseparable from the prophetic word that Moses spoke through the Torah and then Elijah, Elisha spoke to the nation. That's why... So we have the, this 
narrative, the, the history, shaped, guided by the prophetic word, and then you have the other that's primarily poetry. And as you look at the, the latter prophets, you think about Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and the book of the Twelve, kind of there is, a, there is a change. In the former prophets from Joshua to Kings, usually you see the hand of God orchestrating the nation, the history. And then you move to the latter prophets, you see what? The heart of God. There's a change from he to I in these prophets. And you see very clear just by looking at the first, the first and the last book of the, the latter prophets, where we have the, the poetry, or we have from Jeremiah to the book of the Twelve. So, for example, if we are taking Jeremiah as the first book of the, the latter prophets, Jeremiah opens with God just opening up his heart. Or if you start with Isaiah, like some other Hebrew canons have, Isaiah is the first one, you also see the heart of the Lord being opened right in the beginning. So, for example, Jeremiah 2, right in the beginning of the book of Jeremiah, for my people have committed two evils. They have, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Look at that. They have dug other cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. Do you see the, the heart of Yahweh being displayed to the people? It's not so much narrative, prose, but it's the Lord speaking. I, you broke me. You broke your covenant with me. Or the last book, that would be Malachi. You see the beginning and the ending of this letter prophets. Malachi also, you see the Lord's opening his heart. He says, a son honors, honors his father and a servant his master. If then I'm a father, where is my honor? If I'm a master, where is my fear? So you see the, the difference. Even though they are all the prophets, you see a change now. Here is the Lord opening his heart, showing the eye, his affections, his love towards his people. So as we look at... Let's go back to the former prophets, so from Joshua to Kings. And actually, as I said last Lord's Day, we, we can trace from Genesis to Kings, but since we are separating here, you have the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, and they together form the first part of the prophets, and they, they describe the conquest of the land, the apostasy in Judges, the establishment of the monarchy in Samuel, the hope with the Davidic king, the division of the kingdom, and then ultimately the exile into Babylon. So that's Joshua from Kings. So we have from occupation to deportation. From occupation with Joshua to deportation with the book of Kings, where they go into exile. Uh, or as I labeled here, we can simply label this first section of the prophets as presence gained and then presence lost. Very similar to Genesis 1 through 3. The Lord gives the Garden of Eden to Adam because of his disobedience to his word, they go into exile. It's very similar to the prophets. Joshua, the Lord brings them into the land, a land like Eden, and because of their disobedience to the word, they are in exile. So here's the structure of these four books. You have Joshua, Judges, 
Samuel, and Kings. In Joshua, we continue the emphasis on the Word of God. Okay, we have the, the Word of God and the presence of God. Joshua, he treasures, he meditates, he obeys the word of the Lord. Therefore, the people can enjoy the presence of God in the land. That's what we see in Joshua first. One scholar says, As cherubim with flaming swords bar the door of Eden because of disobedience, a similar angelic figure with a drawn sword will now lead Israel into Canaan because of meditation on the Torah. So remember, in the Garden of Eden, the cherubim with the the sword with fire, they don't allow Adam and Eve to come. In Joshua, we have an angelic being with a sword leading them into the promised land. That's all we see. Joshua, the new Moses, is called to meditate on the word of the Lord, the Torah, and his delight and obedience to that word will enable him to conquer the land and enjoy God's promised land. That's the book of Joshua. But towards the end of the book of Joshua, if you have your Bibles open, you can turn to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua 24, that's the last chapter of Joshua. And suddenly, we realize that there are some dark clouds here that seem to be coming over Israel. So in Joshua 24, verses 19 through 20, Joshua tells the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. So right now, as Joshua says these final words towards the end of Joshua, you can kind of, ooh, wait a second. Seems like some dark clouds are coming. And then you turn your Bibles and you come to the book of what? Judges. And that's probably one of the darkest books in the Bible. The darkness arrived. And then we see in Judges how the inability, as spoken by Moses, spoken by Joshua, their inability to obey the word of the Lord, to keep the Torah, to meditate, to treasure God's word. The the presence of God is very sporadic. He, He places his spirit very sporadically on some men to fight and deliver Israel from some enemies. The need for a godly king is declared in the last words of the book. So in Judges 21-25, says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So he started seeing that they need a king. They need a godly king to reign over them and help them to walk in holiness. Like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Israel... Now in Judges, continues to determine good and evil in their own eyes. So for Genesis 3.15, the promise of the Messiah to be fulfilled, Israel needs a king. And then what is the next book after Judges? Samuel. And what is Samuel all about? The monarchy. They need a king. Samuel brings the monarchy, the, the, the human monarchy into Israel. So first of all, we have Saul. He's placed as king. And Saul is rejected because like Adam, he refused to listen to the word of the Lord. The result is he lost the presence of God. He lost the spirit of God. And then that same word of God comes to David. 
and the promise that God will, through a Davidic king, dwell with his people. So that's the book of Samuel. The book of Samuel is very important as brings the, the, the theme of the Ark of the Covenant, obedience to God's word, and especially the Davidic king. So David is on the throne. What is the next book after Samuel? Kings. And kings, we move to Solomon. King Solomon. We all thought that he was the great son of David. We start reading and we see that Solomon, just like Adam, he does what? Disobeys the word of the Lord. He does not treasure the word of the Lord. He stops listening to the word of God. The book of Kings is important because here the prophetic ministry starts to be developed with two men. What are the two men? Elijah and Elisha. They come in the book of Kings. Very similar to Moses and Joshua. Now we have Elijah and Elisha and they take this mantle of the prophetic ministry. Uh, One scholar says, Solomon stops listening to the word of the Lord and is disciplined by the Lord through the nations surrounding him. His sin splits the kingdom. After Solomon's fall, neither Israel nor Judah, with few exceptions, listened to the word of the Lord. Hence, after enduring with great patience their idolatry and false worship, God judges both nations, the north and the south. The Lord decreates the land. The people are exiled. The city of Jerusalem and the house of the Lord are destroyed. Israel is in the hands of the nations. Oh, however, in his faithfulness to David, the Lord maintains his promise and keeps David's seed alive in anticipation of Israel's coming redemption. So that's how the book of Kings ends. You can turn there. Turn to the end of the book of Kings. 2 Kings chapter 25. And you see that the nation of Israel is in a Babylonian graveyard. They're dead in exile. They're buried in Babylon under captivity. That's how Kings ends. But right before the book ends, we hear that the king of Babylon, the king of Babylon shows mercy and grace to whom? Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is from the line of whom? David. So we see here this mercy is just the seed of hope that the Lord will resurrected one day the Davidic dynasty. So, if we trace an arc from Joshua to Kings, covering the former prophets, we see how there is a contrasting parallel between Joshua in the beginning leading the nation and Jehoiakim in the end leading the nation. Joshua found himself outside the land, and because of his obedience to the word, the Lord moved him into the land. Jehoiakim is the opposite. He is found inside the land, and because of his disobedience to the word, what happens to him? Outside the land. So that's the, the former prophets, the importance of the word of God. 
We also see from a good trace a line from Genesis to Kings, and we see similarity between Adam and Jehoiakim also. Placed by the Lord's grace in that beautiful land of God's presence, and because of the disobedience, they go into exile. But what's beautiful is that both the Torah and the prophets, they always end with hope. There is the hope that God will raise up the Messiah, the seed. So that's the end of the former prophets, ends with kings. The next section would move to the letter prophets, the poetry. And there is a break. So you're moving the narrative, and suddenly, as you start reading Jeremiah or Isaiah, you notice that there is a very different style of literature. Instead of prose, narrative, you have uh, poetry now. And that's God's way of bringing his own commentary on what's taking place. So with the letter prophets, it's God himself running his own commentary why the nation is in exile, what's happening, and what he will do. So that's the letter prophets. And you have Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and then the twelve. You see, we, we have the minor prophets. We call minor prophets, right? Minor, not because they are less important, but because of the size of the books. But in the Hebrew Bible, it's just one scroll. So it's just one book. It's the book of the twelve. That's fascinating. So that's why we have different numbers of books in, in the scriptures. We count 12. They count just one book there. So much of the later prophets focus, you think about Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, the 12, they are focusing on the exile, the future hope of the Messiah, the Davidic king who will bring the Torah to the nations and will restore the presence of God among the Gentiles. So, by placing the latter prophets, this poetry, this commentary, right by the death of Israel in Babylon, the Lord is saying, listen to me, let me explain what's taking place. Here's why they are in the Babylonian graveyard. Here's how you are to live right now. And here's what's coming. There is a new covenant coming. There's something better coming. So we move, as we are moving, we finish the prophets. The, the last book of the prophet is Malachi. That will be the last chapter there of the 12. Uh, let me skip this one here. And it's important because in Malachi, Malachi ends saying, Remember the Torah of my servant Moses. Remember the Torah of my servant Moses. That's how it ends. The next section is going to be the Psalms. The writings. How does Psalm 1 begin? Blessed is the man who meditates on what? The Torah of the Lord. So we start noticing that there is an intentional, authorial Stitching together of these books. So the Torah ends talking about the Torah. The instruction of the Lord. The prophets begin and end talking about 
You think about Joshua 1, meditating the Torah of the Lord, and then ends calling the people to listen to the Torah of my servant Moses. And then you come to the Psalms or the writings and begins also with a call to the Torah. So you see how by putting together this, this unifying themes, you're putting the whole together with the focus on the instruction, the covenantal instruction of the Lord. So, can you see that? <laughs> Good. So let's move to the writings. The writings. That's the last portion of Jesus' Bible, of the Tanakh. Uh, and the writings, similar to the prophets, it has poetry and then moves to narrative. It's the opposite of the prophets. So the prophets, you have narrative and then poetry. The writings is poetry and then narrative. And these books, especially the, the first part, Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ruth, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and Lamentations, it's primarily teaching us how to think and live by faith in light of the covenant which we belong, especially in exile. So you think about the prophets, the last three books of the prophets, you have Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, and they're all after the exile. They all return to the land and yet, they are talking as if they are still in exile. So when you come to this portion, the Psalms, the Proverbs, Job, you've got to read in light of the people in exile. How someone living in exile would read these books? One scholar writes, In such a context of sustained darkness... The loyal remnant needed a clarity, needed clarity on how to maintain their faith, even in the midst of life suffering and enigmas. This is the purpose of the final section of Jesus' Bible. The writings provided guidance to this faithful few, still in slavery, who remained resolute in their confidence that Yahweh was on the throne and, and would one day right all wrongs through a royal redeemer. So, that's basically the, the context of this writing. So, you have the first group, this poetry, you have Psalms, then you have Job, you have Proverbs, you have Ruth, you have Ecclesiastes, and then you have uh, Lamentations. And that's, Psalms is the first book because that's the largest book and it's a very appropriate for the transition. And the book of Psalms is divided in how many books? Five, yeah. So the book of Psalms is divided into five books. And it's following the pattern of what? The Torah, the first five books. Okay, so you see how they are structuring things here. The, uh, Psalm 1 and 2 is the entrance to the whole writing. Psalms 1 and 2 is the entrance to the whole writings. And there you see the importance of meditating in the Torah of the Lord, obeying God's word. You have the emphasis on the Messiah, chapter 2, the holy hill, the, the presence of God. That's chapter 1 and 2 of Psalm. It's the opening. And the great theme, the great theme that's going to be here is the fear of the Lord. So Psalm 1 talks about the fear of the Lord. Psalm 2 to fear the Son, kiss His hand. So He has the fear of the Lord being explored here through these books. And a wise person, well, who, who is a wise person? The one who fears the Lord. And how does He show His wisdom and His fear? By obeying His word, by treasuring His word. Right? 
The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Who cares about the word of the Lord, where he reveals himself? Okay, so Psalm is the first one. Uh, in Psalms, those hoping for the kingdom consummation express through lament, thanksgiving, and praise their faith and joy in, in the Lord who reigns over all and the expectancy of the Messiah. Then you move to Job. Job is the second largest book in this poetic group and teaches us. What, what does the book of Job teach us? Think about if you were a righteous Jew living in exile. Think about Daniel. Think about Ezra. Think about Nehemiah. Righteous men who were in exile. And the book of Job helps us to understand that the righteous will suffer. The righteous suffer. That's what the book of Job is teaching us. There is a mysterious way that the Lord, He brings pain even to His faithful children. The Messiah of the Psalms is the Redeemer of Job who crushes Leviathan and Behemoth. In the book of Job, Job is presented as one who is restored from his captivity. Job's life is extended 140 years. That's twice the length of the exile. Remember the exile was 70 years? The book of Job, like the book of Psalms, moves from lament to praise. From exile to exodus. Then we move to Proverbs. Proverbs is basically an exposition of Genesis and Deuteronomy. It's the father is the king, the king of the nation, teaching his children, his people, how to obey, how to live in the fear of the Lord by obeying, by his treasuring the Torah, the instruction, the covenantal instruction of the Lord. So you have Psalms, you have Job, you have Proverbs. And what comes after Proverbs? Ruth. And Ruth, honestly, Ruth is an amazing book because in some, in some Hebrew canons, Ruth actually goes before Psalms because it's introducing to us David. But in others, and I think it's very appropriate where it goes right after Proverbs because Proverbs ends with what? What is Proverbs 31 all about? What? The noble, the godly woman. And then that same word for Proverbs 31 is found only in Ruth. And Ruth is the embodiment of that woman. She's a, a representation of the wisdom preached in Proverbs. The fear of the Lord. Ruth and Boaz, and Boaz a Gentile woman and a Jewish man, they represent in flesh what the fear of God produces in human life. Ruth was in exile from God's presence, but by fearing Yahweh, she comes to dwell with him. Similar to Job, Ruth is restored from exile and receives the blessing of the Redeemer. Then he moved to a book. It's going to vary. Sometimes it's Ecclesiastes, sometimes it's Song of Songs. If it's Song of Songs, you understand why they they place Song of Songs right there because Song of Songs celebrate what? The love, the beauty of a godly marriage. And we had right there before in Ruth and Boaz and people celebrate just like in, in Song of Songs they celebrate a godly marriage. I also think about the book of Song of Songs as they are thinking in exile, as they are reading in exile. The love of the man and the woman is a picture of the love of Yahweh for his people. 
Therefore, the text, when read in its canonical context, inspires hope that the great husband of Israel, the great shepherd king, will come to take his bride and place her like a seal over his heart. But you see, if you read Song of Songs in the context, context of exile, you see the beauty as these people is waiting for the great husband to come and rescue them, just like in Song of Songs. In Ecclesiastes, we are called to, to turn away from the wisdom of the world. Stop looking at Babylon. Babylon makes no sense. Turn your eyes to the heavenly Zion. Fear the Lord. That's what we see in Ecclesiastes. Lamentations is beautifully placed as the last book of this poetic section. What is the book of Lamentations all about? What? Yeah, they're lamenting what? Jeremiah. Remember the author Jeremiah First book of the prophets, Jeremiah. Now we're coming to the close of the, the poetic here, Jeremiah once again. And Jeremiah is lamenting what? Exile. They're in Babylon. He's lamenting that they are in exile. Do you remember the book of Kings? book of Kings ended where? Babylon. And now... Lamentations is the perfect bridge to take us back to Babylon. Therefore, we move to the narrative. And where is Daniel? In Babylon. So do you see how there is coherence and they are tracing that? Okay, we, f- we finish the narrative with the people of God in Babylon. We finish the poetry taking us back to Babylon. Lamentations. And then the first book in the narrative, as we pick up, where are we? In Babylon with Daniel. So we have the book of Daniel and Esther, and I, I would argue that these books show how, how to live and how not to live in exile, respectively. Daniel shows how to be faithful to God's word, how to fear God, even to the point of death, while Esther shows us the desire to compromise the word of God in order to preserve her life. Daniel is a clear example of a man who is willing to die because he fears the Lord. Esther is a clear example of someone who is willing to compromise and sleep with a pagan king in order to save her life. How to live and how not to live in exile. Then he moved to Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah is just one book. And Ezra and Nehemiah tells us of the return. Now they return to the land. And it seems like things are going well, but things are not going well. Because you come towards the book of Nehemiah, and what is Nehemiah doing? Not pulling his beard, he's pulling the beards of others, the hair of others. Why? Because they are intermarrying the Gentiles, they're disobeying the word of God, they're not fearing the Lord. So you see, even though they return from exile, they are still in exile to their sins, their sins. That's the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Yes, they returned, but they didn't return. <laughs> That's not the return that the prophet spoke. Their hearts are still hard. They're still going after things that are not appropriate, that do not please the Lord. Then you think, is that it? Is that it? No, there's one more book. And what is the last book of the Tanakh? Chronicles. Chronicles is very important, the, the placement of Chronicles. 
And turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter 36. And here you see the contrast between the English and the Hebrew canon, the structure of the Bibles. We take Chronicles just like the, the Greek title, the book of leftovers. And it's, if, you're, if you just read Kings, you come to Chronicles, it's like, oh, wow, just the same thing. It's not the same thing. And especially if you take some time to read after Kings, you go through all these things, and then you come to Chronicles, you see the beauty of the book of Chronicles. But Chronicles ends, look at that. We read earlier, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred the spirit of Cyrus. And then Cyrus says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house. Okay. Look at the next page in your Bible. What do you have there? Ezra 1. Look at Ezra 1, verse 2. Or verse 1 and 2. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stir up the spirit of Cyrus. They say, maybe it's the same thing. It's the same thing. Why is it right here? Right? But you see, if you see Chronicles as the last book, there is a theology here. And something very important. How does the book of Chronicles begin? Look at there, Chronicles 1.1. 1, 1. What is the first name in the book of Chronicles? Who? Adam. Where is Adam? In Genesis. So do you see Chronicles as the last book? He's bringing the whole history of the Old Testament back. It's a recapitulation with interpretation. So he's tracing all the way from Adam and now to David. David is the great hero of Chronicles. They don't even tell about David's sin. Do you know why? Not because of David, but because of the king from the line of David that will come. To create hope that one greater than this David will come. That's the book of Chronicles. So it begins right there in Genesis, taking us back, recapitulating the whole history. Do you see how it makes sense if you place this book at the last one of the Old Testament? Oh, now we're going back all the way. All the way to creation. And then ends with Cyrus telling the people to go back. But you see, if you're reading in the Hebrew canon, you know that that already took place. That already happened. We read that in, in Ezra and Nehemiah. What is happening here? The author of Hebrews is teaching us that there is the hope that something better will happen. That return wasn't the return. There is a greater return coming. There is a greater one coming to lead God's people up to build the true temple of God. That's how Chronicles ends. He's repeating that part from Ezra, but saying, you guys know very well that that was not the return that we were expecting. We saw how Nehemiah ended. We saw there was no true exodus and deliverance from sin, a new heart. And the author of Chronicles is saying, amen, that has not happened yet. We are waiting. We are waiting for the one who will lead us 
out of captivity. The one who will guide us into the holy hill of the Lord to build his temple. And then you turn their page to the New Testament. And you come to what is the first book? What is the first book? Matthew. Matthew begins with what? A genealogy just like Chronicles. And Matthew ends just like Chronicles also. There is a a contrast between Cyrus and Jesus. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go. Matthew ends with Jesus. He is the greater Cyrus. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, here's the presence again, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we see the parallel between the book of Chronicles as it's ending the Old Testament canon and Matthew that's opening the New Testament canon. And Matthew is declaring the great hope took place with Jesus, the Messiah. He is the son of Abraham and the son of David that we are longing and looking for. That's how the New Testament opens. Since Chronicles is a recapitulation and exposition of the whole Tanakh, Matthew used the book of Chronicles to show how Jesus fulfills the whole Old Testament. Jesus, the son of David, has come to bring the end of exile and build the true temple of God. The true and glorious exodus promised by the latter prophets is accomplished through Jesus. So that's from, you see, Genesis to Chronicles. And there's a beautiful coherence of theme here. Amen? So, I believe that when Jesus says, in Luke 24 and in other parts, he says, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I believe he's not just talking about random passages here and there, but he's talking about the whole structure of the Old Testament. How the whole structure of the Tanakh declares the need of a Messiah to come and bring God's people into God's presence through an exodus-like resurrection. That's what we see throughout the whole. So if you put together the writings, the Torah, the prophets, and you see the structure, there is this need of the Messiah, the importance of the word of the Lord, the theme of exile, and the great expectation of an exodus to come. And that's exactly what Jesus accomplishes. So, the Tanakh opens and ends with the expectation of the Messiah. It's fascinating how the book of Genesis ends in a very similar way that the book of Chronicles ends. The repetition of words. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you. Pakad. And bring you up. Yalaha. Out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely, surely visit you and shall carry up my bones from here. And then in Chronicles ends with 
The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has, Pakad, has visited me. Caused me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, all his people, may the Lord, his God, be with him. Let him uh, go up. And so you see, Joseph's hope, Joseph's expectation that one day his bones would be taken out of the Egyptian graveyard and brought into God's presence, that one day he would be restored into the land of God's presence. Is picked up in Chronicles and is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus alone can bring those who are in the graveyard of Egypt and Babylon and Persia and bring them to the holy hill of the Lord. That's how you see the structure. Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament. His life, his death, his resurrection, it's all declared in the law the prophets, and the writings. It's right there. And the beautiful thing is when we are celebrating the Lord's Supper, when we are celebrating the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating the drama of the deliverance through suffering, the drama of exile to exodus, the drama of moving from Sheol to God's presence by eating and drinking at the Lord's table. So as we we sit together to celebrate the Lord's table, we are actually doing through gestures all that the Tanakh was speaking about. The Messiah will come. And through his life of suffering, pain, exile, he will, through his resurrection, lead us back into God's presence. And that's what we celebrate during the Lord's Supper. Amen? What a privilege, what an honor it is to sit at the Lord's table and through gestures... Proclaim this drama of redemption, the glorious drama of God rescuing us and bringing us into his house. Oh, Father, we stand in awe of you because you were so kind and merciful towards us. Thank you for Jesus, the Savior, the one who brings us out of Sheol, the grave, the graveyard, and leads us through his resurrection life in an exodus journey into the the dwelling of the triune God. It's so wonderful for us to stop, meditate about the beauty of your word, and through the Lord's Supper, enter the drama of the Old Testament. And as we partake of the bread and the cup, we are celebrating and proclaiming this beautiful, this glorious, majestic drum of redemption. So we give you all the glory, all the praise, because it's you and you alone doing the work. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.